standing outside the convent here on Mount Joy Street, what was the convent where I made my first Holy Communion on the 18th of May, 1974. The 18th of May, like any other little girl, and the first Holy Communion day was to be the happiest day of my life. There'd been months of preparation um, because my brother Billy was making, was also making his Holy Communion on the 18th of May. But back then, the girls made their communions separately to the boys. He was making her, his in the church in Dominic Street, and I was making mine in the convent. My mother had taken us both to Hamels, I remember, um, where she bought my dress and Billy's suit. The dresses and the suit would have been hanging for weeks inside in the house, and I wasn't allowed to go near it. It was hanging covered in the wardrobe, but I would often open it just to have a peek and try on my crown and veil. In the build-up to my Holy Communion, one of my clearest memories was that I was chosen from a class of possibly 30 other pupils to do a reading at the Communion. Apparently I had a nice speaking voice and this is why the teacher chose me. My parents were so proud. My father, every evening when he arrived home from work, put me standing on the coffee table. The reading was a reading from St Paul, the Epistles. I could never say the epistles, and every evening I said a reading from St. Paul the Pistols. My father did say to me, Angela O'Neill, I am so proud of you. It was a huge deal for me to have been chosen to do this reading. He wasn't going to be there on the day because he had also to take my brother to his first communion in the church. So he really, really wanted to hear me saying for once a reading from St. Paul the epistles. And apparently he cried with laughter each time I said the pistols and was convinced I was going to say the pistols on the day. The 17th of May was a Friday and I was making my Holy Communion on the Saturday. I have very vivid memories of the day because of the amount of excitement in the house. Um, Not only were Billy and myself making our first Holy Communions on the 18th, but it was also my older sister Denise's ninth birthday on that day. So there was a huge excitement. My father had arrived home with a birthday card and a charm bracelet for her ninth birthday. Um, This was lunchtime that day and the arrangements were that my mother was taking me to the hairdressers to have her hair done and to have my hair done and my father was going off to the barbers with the two boys. The 18th of May was to be the happiest day, one of the happiest days of my life, but I had no idea that the 17th of May would impact on the rest of my life. We've moved along now onto Parnell Street. I work around the corner, just around the corner from these offices and may walk along the street possibly three or four times a week. But I can never walk along the street without thinking of what happened on the 17th of May, 1974. The cross here, we have a barber's. There was a barber's where my father had brought my two brothers to have their hair cut. The reason he chose this barber's was because he was a black belt in karate and had my... my sister Denise and my brother Billy and myself in judo Uh, he trained upstairs and we did our training downstairs the guy that he did karate with actually owned this barber, Liam O'Sullivan and had told my father that he had just gotten a Bruce Lee poster in and apparently Bruce Lee posters were a big deal at the time, not many people would have had them so my father had promised to take the two boys to see the Bruce Lee poster he arrived in the barber's that day with a cousin of my mother's that he had been working with but had come home, they had finished at lunchtime so he could take the boys off. He had his own hair trimmed and left the two boys in the barbers with Liam 
and went a couple of doors up here to the welcome in to have a pint. He had a pint with Liam and um, realised he needed to go back in to see if the boys were okay. He actually apparently ordered two other drinks while before just before he left the welcome in and wouldn't wait for his change. He then came out of the welcome in and went into the barbers and the two boys were sitting there ready and waiting for him, full of excitement, ready to move on and get home and get ready for the next day. When he walked out of the barbers, his van was actually parked outside, right outside the barber shop. He drove a blue Ford Transit van. And when he walked outside of the barbers, he went to open the van door for some reason that I'm not sure of. And just as he did that, a bomb exploded. The hairdressers I was in with my mother on that day was in Bolton Street, which was uh, some distance away. And I can remember the hysteria because we actually heard the explosion. I wasn't frightened or hysterical, but I remember one woman being absolutely hysterical in the hairdressers. And my mother had a sense of angst and needing to get home. Um, it was seven o'clock that evening before I arrived home with my mother because the hairdresser was so busy with the communions going on the next day. My the father's van was parked right next to the car that held the car bomb. So they felt they got a full impact of, of it. The two boys were very, very seriously injured. Um, Edward was four then and Billy was seven years old. Um, apparently some man hailed down a taxi and picked Edward up and put him into the back of the taxi and he was, one, he was the first casualty to reach Jervis Street Hospital on that day. Um, Billy was brought, we think, by ambulance. We're not too sure of how Billy was brought there. I suppose Edward suffered greater injuries than Billy and apparently my father had lost a button from his jacket and Billy went to run after the button and at that point the bomb had exploded so Billy's, Billy didn't receive such severe injuries as Edward and maybe it was the button that saved him. <laughs> Um, that's what we believe and that's what he believes um, he would have very vivid memories of the button falling from my father's jacket and nothing after that um, both of the boys were taken to Jervis Street Hospital at this point the bombs went off at five, five past five I believe in Parnell Street on that Friday the 17th of May and it was seven o'clock by the time my mother and I reached Dominic Street Flats that evening I can remember skipping along with her and we had to go to the chemist to get clips, hair clips. And um, along outside Bolton Street Tech, there was always lots of motorbikes and bikes parked and I was apparently getting on them and she was really, really anxious to get home at this point. Um, as we reached where we lived, I remember a neighbour coming towards us uh, with a chair, a kitchen chair, and coming over to my mother and telling my mother to sit down. Um, that there had been a bomb and Edward was in hospital. That's all we knew at that point. Um, oh, that my yeah, that Edward was in hospital and and possibly Billy, but we didn't believe or she didn't think that my father was injured at all at that point. I was taken up to where we lived and my mother was taken straight to Jervis Street Hospital by another neighbour and friend. Um. I remember being at home that evening myself and just hordes and hordes of people arriving to the house 
and I actually went off at one point because of the amount of attention and the amount of people that were in the house and took my communion dress and veil from that was hanging in the wardrobe and hung it um, on the back of a, a door in the sitting room because I wanted everybody to know and not to forget that you know, this was my big day, regardless of whatever else was going on, this was my big day. So I was placing it firmly in everybody's eye shut. Um, my mother arrived at uh, Jervis Street Hospital and they told her that Edward was dead. Um, Edward was four years old. Um, they didn't know where my father was and they said that Billy was in theatre. So... Um, I can only be, I can only imagine the chaos that was going on in um, Jervis Street that evening. Uh, when my mother arrived to Jervis Street, there were actually coffins lined up outside uh, the walls because of the number of fatalities. Um, and Ireland, the Southern Ireland, had never really seen anything on the scale of this disaster, and were in no way prepared for it. All of the hospitals were on alert. All of the, the hospitals around the city were on alert. Um, and I imagine each one was chaotic as the next. But at some point then, my mother was sitting waiting for news. She was heavily pregnant herself at this time with their sixth child. Um, and doctors came out and um, told her that Edward O'Neill was dead. So because my father was always called Eddie and Edward Edward, she still didn't think that it was my father. But her brother-in-law then went and identified his body that, that same time because her family had arrived in Jervis Street to join her. So he identified his body and um, she knew then that he was dead. Uh, two boys were seriously, seriously injured and Edward more so than Billy, but both of their conditions were critical. Um... And they had an awful long journey ahead of them and an awful long stay in hospital. The next day was the 18th of May um, and that was going ahead regardless. But I remember the night that my mother came home, my sister and myself rushed to her and there were other people at the side of her almost holding her up. And my sister asked, where was Daddy? Um, she would have been extremely close to him because she was the first child. And she asked my mother where was daddy and she said he was gone to heaven, to the angels. I had no idea what that meant um, on the day and uh, I was still just worried about getting my dress on the next morning. Got up the next morning and somehow my mother managed to pull it off and get me into my clothes. But not only the loss of her husband, but also knowing that her two boys were possibly dying in Jervis Street Hospital. And one of those, Billy, should have been making his communion and get dressed alongside me on that morning. I was brought to the convent um, to make my Holy Communion. And I will always remember the reading because I, I remember it not for reading it, but I remember that when I actually read it, my mother was taken outside of the convent. It was obviously just too much for her at that point. And for the first time, I said a reading from St. Paul the Epistles to the Corinthians perfectly so I did read that reading and read it perfectly again at his funeral mass a few days later Billy and Edward were both seriously seriously injured 
but Billy managed not to receive any any scars to the face, any injuries to the face or the head. Edward, however, had um, a piece of a car lodged from his head right down to his neck. So he was left with a a very, very severe scar right along um, one side of his face. He'd also had damage to one of his ears and scars right over his body. Because of the shock of the bombings, um, Edward had a severe stutter after them and it was from trauma. Um, Back then, nobody received counselling for such things and um, people were just left to cope as best they could. Um, Edward stuttered for a number of years um, and I suppose did suffer a lot of bullying um, from other children. He was called Scarface um, and I mean I know at home we we used to call him Hovis because it was an advertisement for Hovis bread and he could never say Hovis, he always said Hovis (laughs) and uh, we called him that but I suppose it was okay coming from us to a point but to have to go out onto the street and to strangers calling him names and looking at him. I remember when he started going to discos and things like that when he was about 16 or 17. Um, at one point, a bouncer stopped him from going into the disco because of the scar on his face. He'd obviously thought that he'd received it through, you know, acting the gurry or whatever. And my mother was absolutely furious and uh, got in a taxi that night and went up to, to speak to this man. Um, So that was the kind of stuff that he had to to live with for the rest of his life. Um, As I said, Billy wasn't um, as badly injured in that way, but very, very mentally scarred and bruised from it, um, as both of them are. Um, I suppose it's not something that... Like, both of them have a surgery, Edward more so. Edward had um, a major thyroid operation just last year because of shrapnel damage to the thyroid, a piece of shrapnel actually lodged that managed to work its way right around the neck. Um, he ended up having his thyroid gland removed um, just last year. He's forever um, having pieces of shrapnel that surface in the skin. Uh, he has to go to hospital and have those removed. So he was left completely deaf in one ear. Um, so I think the 17th of May for him, I suppose, is not something that he can forget as easily maybe as Billy. Um, it's just not allowed to go away for him because of the injuries, injuries that he'll, he'll suffer for the rest of his life. My mother was left with five children from the age of nine down to a year and five months. I suppose my father had been the, the, the breadwinner in the family and they had their whole lives ahead with plans of their own. Um, she was, I suppose her life was possibly just, well, not possibly, but was thrown into disarray. Um, the breadwinner of the family was gone and she had five young children to, to worry about. Um, as young children, I suppose, well, for, for me, I can speak for myself, but I never really noticed that my father wasn't around in a monetary sense or I suppose even sometimes in a physical sense because my mother was always so busy um, running to and fro, collecting us from school, making lunches, cleaning the house um, and just generally being there and trying to do some work in between that. Um, I suppose it's only later on as I grew up a bit that I realised how much of a struggle it was and didn't appreciate how hard she had to work initially after those years. And not only had she to get up and, and change her whole life, 
but she had two very sick boys that she was attending hospitals with and she had just lost her husband. Um, but as I said, because, because of the way she was herself and she was such a hard worker and a get-up-and-go person, um, at that point I didn't realise the impact that my father's death had had on the family or had certainly had on her. When my father died, my mother was six months pregnant, expecting their sixth child. Um, that was something that they were really looking forward to. And apparently Edward was the most excited out of us all about the birth. When Niall was too young to realise, he was a year and five months old. But Edward was always asking after my father died when he was going to get his new baby brother or baby sister. On the 1st of August 1974, Martha was born stillborn in the Rotunda Hospital. At that point, my mother almost lost her own life. Her health had deteriorated so badly. Um, she wasn't able to eat, wasn't able to sleep. So do you consider your baby sister, Martha, the 34th victim of the Dublin Monaghan bombings? We have always believed that she died because of the Dublin Monaghan bombings. Had it not been for that, she would have been born perfectly well and will be with us here today. Um, my mother talks about the day she arrived home from hospital and Edward was sitting on the stairs and asked her, he was home from hospital at this point, asked her where his baby was and she had to tell him, this very, very sick little boy, that his baby was gone to heaven with his daddy. Oh, it's good to get into the car park. The rain is so bad outside. I'm now going to drive to Enniskillen to meet a woman who has something in common with myself. So, here we are. After a long drive, we've arrived in Enniskillen, thankfully. I'm Joan Anderson. Very, very pleased to meet you. Just come on in and we'll have a seat and we can talk. Come on, that's just in here. Wow, make yourself comfortable. Come on, we'll sit over here. Well, I hope you had a very good trip up to, from Dublin. It's, it's really lovely to meet you. On Remembrance Sunday 1987, it was 8 o'clock in the morning and my phone rang and we were not getting up that early and I thought that was, it was scary. Um, and the, the, whenever I answered the phone, my brother-in-law wanted to speak to my husband, insisted on speaking to him. And I thought that was strange. I thought it that he had bad news and I insisted that he talk to me and he told me there was no easy way to tell me that my mom and dad were both dead. And immediately I thought, a car accident. They were in a car accident. And I said, what happened? Uh, what happened? And I, I think my whole mind went into the most awful fog and my stomach was sick. And he finally told me that they were killed at the Cenotaph. 
and I wasn't able to think straight, but at the whole the whole time that he was talking to me, I was looking right at this photograph that I'd taken in the August, and I couldn't con conceive of that they were gone. And he, I said, what happened? And he said, it was a bomb. And uh, I mean, I, it, he I had to pass the phone over to my husband because I couldn't get the story straight. I didn't want to hear it. And I was kind of, I was out of control and shaken and just, I, I can't express the feelings. I'm, I was just without words. And Lindsay got all the information and we finally hung up and we made we made a decision that the three of us, my son, my husband and I would go home immediately. And I didn't know what, where to start. I was completely in a, I was just, it was a whirlwind of pain and grief. And that was the start of it. And it only got worse. The enormity of the tragedy was because it was my parents and I knew other people were probably dead. I hadn't. I didn't really have all the details. I knew a lot of people were injured, <clears throat> and that the town would be in chaos. Um, I didn't know anything about the actual details until we got to Shannon Airport uh, on our flight home, and all the Monday morning papers came in on board, and I was another ordinary passenger looking on 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 either side to see the headlines of the carnage in Enniskillen. And I couldn't even bear to think that I was going home to face my parents in this carnage. And the photographs that I could see out the corner of my eye, was it my mum? Was it my dad? Was it, uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't just take it in. And I wanted everybody, I wanted to scream at everybody, put those papers away. I am dealing with that and I don't know what I'm going to have to deal with. Uh, the journey home, we were met by my mother-in-law and her sister. They came to the Dublin airport for us. And the drive home was, um, well, I th again, I was in just a state of disbelief. But when we came to Enniskillen, I glanced at my watch and I was shocked to, to realise that I was passing the very place where my mum and dad had lost their life 24 hours. It was uncanny. And it was a coincidence, but it shook me. But there was hoardings up and there was no sign of the devastation. It had all been tidied away. But the whole feeling of passing the spot one day later, I just thought, how did that timing happen? It was really weird. Well, my sister Margaret and her husband were on their way back from a trip that they had to Kenya and they were en route home. So I didn't have Margaret and Crawford, and I missed I missed that opportunity because we all needed to be together. My sister Ruth was home, and she was trying to keep everything together. She was like mom. She was uh, making sure that everybody had a bed to sleep in and food to eat, and um, she was just taken up with that. Um, and... All we could talk about was, we can't believe this, I can't believe it, and we couldn't wait for Margaret to come home so the three of us could be together. Well, my mum and dad were the solid, stable people that everybody needs as parents. My father was a pharmacist. He was Billy, his name was William, but everybody called him Billy. And he'd had a, established a really good business, and he was the man that everybody would look up to. He was really well respected in his business, in his church 
and obviously as a family man. And my mom was a home a homemaker. She spent her life helping others, and she was the person that anybody would have turned to in grief or if they had any problems at all. She was just um, the most incredibly understanding, loving woman who put herself behind everybody else. And as parents, we had the very, very best. And later on in our grief and our trying to come to terms with their deaths, the one thing that did help us greatly was that we did have the best. And a lot of people don't experience that. And we could always look back on our parents as always... They always did the right thing. They were always there for us, and we all loved each other very much. And mum and dad were the sort of people that everybody loved. And my, my our mother was like an angel. She was the person that everybody would go to. She never said anything bad about anybody. She said if you couldn't see the good in them, you shouldn't look for the bad. And in every way, she just she was just a loving caring and good person the night before the funeral uh, we were we went up to the hospital that's where their bodies were and we walked into this rather small room and it was cold two coffins and it wasn't like there was any flowers or anything warm about the room the room was cold and it was very 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 cruel it was just awful to see these two boxes and that's where our mum and dad were and then the a lot of people started to arrive to pay their condolences and it it was crowded. They came in one door and out the other door and we were doing this in another state of disbelief. The next day was the funerals and again the media were there in full force and the crowds. And um, well, before that, we had a service in the church. Um, after we After the crowds came into the hospital room, the two coffins were put into two hearses. And we walked behind them for a little while and then we got into the taxis and the, the, the hearses went to the Presbyterian Church and there was a service there. But when we walked in to the service, there was one red rose on both of the coffins and that had been put on by my mom's sister out of her own garden who was inconsolable and um, cried the whole way through the service. And that service was very intimate and personal Um very very crowded and then the next day we had the funerals and that day it, it was again almost an invasion on our grief but we got through it and the service was lovely we sang their they didn't have any favorite hymns because they loved all the hymns in the church um and we we went through we got through that again and that was we were just doing what we had to do, but it was it passed over, and but to follow not one hearse but two hearses was just crushing. It was awful, and um, it it was hard to know which hearse when we walked. You know, it was hard to know the two hearses had to be together. We had to have them side by side because they were our mum and dad. And anyway, when it came to the grave. I think it was drizzling and it, re it was raining and it wasn't that nice. Um, and again, the crowds were... Uh, I never saw so many people. And there was a bit of, you know, at the grave, we. I remember my husband having to hold on tight to me because there was such a crowd behind me and they were pushing us. And to see the two coffins, everything was two and it was painful. It was both of them 
it was no room for one, we had to have two. And um, that was just very, very painful. And again, you couldn't believe it was happening. It was almost surreal that it was somebody else and you were there. And there, there was just nothing about it that made it easy for us. It was painful every second. I have always been a person who the grave is just a spot where their earthly body is. I've always had my mum and dad in my heart. When I go to the grave, it doesn't make me feel like I'm talking to them or anything. I don't have to go to the grave. They're inside of me. I hear their voices in my ear when I need to. Um, the grave is just where their earth... My mother was a great one for saying that your body, whenever you die, it's the memories and the spirit. That was just their earthly remains. And going to the grave really never made me feel... It, in, if all I could feel was coldness and the terrible loss. And I didn't, I didn't need to go to the grave to, to feel close to my parents. I, they were with me all the time. But the, the, the whole uh, burial was just awful. Again, to see the two, it's bad enough to see one coffin, but to see two. And I just remember crowds, um, coldness and great, just great pain. And I don't remember after the, the coffins were put into the ground. I don't remember much after that. And I don't even hardly remember where we went. I think we went back to Margaret's house. And we all gathered there just to, well, to try to have something to eat. But eating was the last thing on our minds. What was the hardest part of the whole experience? I think I wanted my mum and dad in the same house. It wasn't possible. I hated the separate. I hated the two. I wanted them to be together. And I just, just every part of it was difficult. There was no part of it that I could say, well, that was nice or... We did, the hymn singing was lovely and my mom was in the church choir and we sat together. She was an alto and I was a soprano when I was home. And I could have said the music was uplifting. It was a service of honouring them and remembering them. But all we had in our hearts were just holes, big, big, empty holes. And I could never imagine life to be any, any better than I felt that day. We just, we suffered a great emptiness. Every day was hard. Every morning getting out of bed, I didn't know why I had, I had to face this darkness and blackness and great grief and I, I couldn't talk without crying the first year. I had to always do that with my throat so that the, the that I didn't start off a conversation crying because I knew I'd end up crying. Um, I went to work, but people tried to be sympathetic, but over there they had no concept of what I'd been through. Um, my whole lifeline was the phone and my next time that I'd be able to go over and visit. And I also had to make the effort for my husband and my son because we were all suffering this grief and my son was particularly affected because he and I had lived with my mum and dad for seven and a half years before I got married and went out to the States. And he lost his parents and his grief, he was hiding it. He was trying to be strong for me and he was going to a school where kids didn't have any clue what his family had just suffered. And his grief was all inside of him 
and we tried to talk, we tried to cry. But I was just like on automatic pilot. I had things to do, I had a job to go to and I did it. But there wasn't any peace and there was no, there was just no end to the grief I felt and I didn't know when I could ever smile again or laugh. The first year, it well actually it went on for several years, but the first year had to be the difficult one with um, all the different uh, anniversaries, birthdays and things like that, that you had both your parents last year, you know, and our lives changed so drastically and I felt very isolated. My only support was my sister's at the end of the phone. And in those days, the phone charges were phenomenal. A 20-minute phone call was 40 or $50. And I, I was always conscious of not keeping on the phone too long, say what I had to say. But those days were the darkest, the most difficult. And you just couldn't see an end to it. I know for the first month, I shook I physically shook. I couldn't even make a cup of coffee without really concentrating on how to do it and didn't even want it to begin with. I found that um, the one thing I used to do, and in a way it crucified me, but I did feel some sort of um, relief afterwards. I used to go up to my bedroom and pull out photographs and letters and cry my eyes out reading the letters, looking at photographs, Right way down the years that I had over in the States and photographs from the recent holidays. And I would just break my heart. I would sit on my knees and read and cry. And then all of a sudden, especially in the winter months right after the the tragedy, um, it would get dark about four o'clock. And I might have been on my knees for two hours, crying my heart out privately. And I get up and realize, well, you know, it's dark and I'd have to put on the light, and then that would get me out of the mode of uh, this terrible um, crying and just living for or living the past and wishing that I had still had them. And then I'd realize I'd maybe have to get up and start dinner, and I wouldn't be able to move <laughs> from sitting the way I was in the position. But the most important thing was that two or three hours of crying made me feel a little bit better. So when people said say to you, oh, crying's good for you, well, I did feel a little bit of relief that I had cried until I could cry no more and that I had, had to get up and make dinner and do what I was supposed to do. I think that the grief process, for five years, I can't even put a, a time on it, but it seemed that we were consumed with this grief the family, the immediate family, it was something we couldn't stop talking about. Nobody should have to live like this. No family should have to lose in such a way that they never recover from it. And all the injured people were going to be reminded of it for the rest of their lives. So in a way, it was just not a cut and dried accidental death. It was a death that had years of pain because of its circumstances. For many people in the South, the abiding memory of the Enniskillen tragedy is Gordon Wilson's words of forgiveness. Do you, you, 20 years on, forgive the people who killed your parents? Well, 20 years later, um, the grief doesn't go away. Um, you just live, learn to live with it. And some, some times are better than others. And we've moved on with our lives and... 
um, we just we've just made the very best of it, and I feel that we're we're doing okay. Um, but as far as forgiveness is concerned, that's something I rarely think about because it's too big for me. It's too much to think if I ever came face to face with anybody that had anything to do with it, I wouldn't know what to say to express my grief and my my revulsion at what they did. I'll never be able to um, forget the fact that my parents were murdered and um, it didn't have to happen. A lot of the deaths shouldn't have happened. And as far as forgiveness is concerned, I can't even think of it because it's beyond my comprehension. But if I did have a chance to meet anybody that had anything to do with it, my first reaction would be to show them a photograph of my parents and say they weren't just two figures. They were incredibly important people and they died in a way nobody should have to die and that part I would I would just have to say you don't know what you did and I hope you can live with it Well, I've just arrived back now from Enniskillen where I listened to Joan's story. I'm standing here in Talbot Street at the memorial for the 33 people who lost their lives. The memorial is placed here at the end of Talbot Street, just in front of Connolly train station. While I was listening to Joan's story, I couldn't speak to her. While I realised the impact it has had on her life, there was nothing I could say to her. But having driven back in the car, I've had time to reflect on that. And we have so much in common, even though we were very different ages. I was seven years old and she was uh, much older than me at the time she lost both her parents. But through our lives, we've both been affected in the same way and will continue to suffer those same effects right through our lives. So we're standing here at the memorial in Talbot Street. Um, I'll try and describe the memorial, although there's not that much to describe. It looks like maybe a, a nine-foot slab of stone. On one side, but at the top, it has um, what looks to me like a dove in flight. And on the other side, it has in loving memory of the victims of Dublin Monaghan bombings, 1974. It also has the names engraved in stone of the 33 victims. Marie Butler, Anne Byrne, Simone Chetreet, John Dargo, Patrick Fay, Breda Grace, Mary McKenna, Anna Massey, Anne Marin, Dorothy Morris, Antonio Maliocco, John O'Brien, Anna O'Brien, Anne-Marie O'Brien, Jacqueline O'Brien, Concepta Dempsey, Christina O'Loughlin, Edward O'Neill, Marie Phelan, Siobhan Royce, Maureen Shields, Breda Turner, Josephine Bradley, Elizabeth Fitzgerald, Archie Harper, 
Peggy White, Jack Travers, Thomas Campbell, George Williamson, Patrick Askin, Colette Doherty, and Thomas Croken. As we approach the 20th anniversary of the Enniskillen bombings, it's important for us all on this island to remember the 13 people who lost their lives on that horrific day. But we should not only remember those, we should remember the 3,000 other people who died throughout the Troubles in, on this island of Ireland. But not only should we remember the 3,000 people who died, we should remember the other victims, the people who were left behind to mourn the loss of their loved ones who died in such horrific circumstances and who have to live with that for the rest of their lives. It's not only people who lost their lives, but people like Joan and myself who have had to live with the impact of such a loss, who have suffered and continue to suffer. Mm -hmm.